So we've been looking at, we've been in this series called New Life and looking at um, kind of that, that tension, right? That tension that says Jesus uh, says in, in John chapter 10 that he came to bring life and that he came to bring life to the full. And yet for most of us, right, the lived reality is that we don't actually feel like our lives are that full. <laughs> um, that many of us feel that sort of like, if life is, if we're supposed to have life to the full, why don't I have it, right? It's that, it's that, that yeah, that tension, right? And so this morning, and what we've been doing throughout this series, is kind of breaking apart this idea of why we don't have life, why we don't experience life to the full. And in the first week, what we talked about is that one of the things that stands in the way of having life to the full is actually the life that we're already living. <laughs> That for many of us, we have these routines and these ways of, of going about life that are mostly unthought about. We don't actually think, for the most part, about our routines of life. We just go throughout life. We live life. There's no real thought-through structure to our life. And so what ends up happening is that we are unintentionally becoming someone. All of us are becoming someone. No kidding. Right? All of us are becoming someone. And for most of us, it's unintentional. We don't think about who we're becoming. And so, we can assent to the teachings of Jesus. We can, we can find Jesus compelling. We can read the Gospels and say, yes, I totally believe that I am on board, and yet not be experiencing the life to the full that Jesus says he came to bring. And that's because sometimes there is a disconnect between what I say I believe and how I actually live my life. By saying like, oh, I am a follower of Jesus, yet when I actually do some kind of audit of my life, I find I actually don't follow very well. There are other things that are taking my attention and my time, and so I'm not experiencing this life to the full. And so we came to the conclusion in the very first week that if we want to experience the life that Jesus offers, then we need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And that follows in kind of three things. We looked at the idea of an apprentice, of somebody who follows and learns a trade or a craft from somebody by doing the things that they did, by getting to know that person, to know what makes them tick, by, by saying, like, I want to know the, the master so that I can become like the master. And then I'm going to do the things that the master does so that then I can become like that person. Right? And so if we want to experience... The life that Jesus offers, it comes by adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. So the first, the first week, we just kind of looked at an overview, right? The second week, we looked at, at the idea of, of abiding, of spending time with, with God, of actually getting to know God through spending time with Him, that it's actually possible to know Jesus. And it starts with that spending time with him. And we know that intuitively, right? When it comes to relationships, we know it's a good idea to spend time with somebody that I want to get to know, right? Um, and so, so, yeah, we looked at abiding. And then the next week, we looked at the idea that the, of, of the mind. And really what we looked at more specifically was the stories that we lived out of. We asked the questions about what stories do I, do I believe? What stories... Are my, are I, am I living out with my life? 
right? What is the story that I believe? Is it one that consuming will bring happiness, right? The freedom to consume whatever I want will bring happiness. That's the narrative many of us, I think, unintentionally live out of because that is the narrative of the culture that we live in, right? It's the unthought about, it is the air we breathe that, you know, like, that's just, it's, it's there. And then last week, Luke talked about the body. That I'm not just a brain on a stick, but I am actually a body. I am something. It's not just I have, you know, this, this sort of Gnostic dualism, if you will, that I think in many ways has come back as like a popular thing, right? The, the mind is good, the body is bad, or at least the body is neutral, and what I do with it doesn't matter. Whereas like the Bible takes a different view and actually says, and I, and I think better fits in with modern science, dare I say, that what I do with my body actually makes a huge difference to the person I become, to the person that I am, right? And so we can't separate mind and body. They are interconnected. They are interwoven with one another, right? We are a body. You don't just have a body. You are a body, right? And so we looked at that last week. Well, this week, all right, building on that. And understand, it's building on to that. This is not a separate, necessarily a separate conversation. It is building on this idea of, of knowing Jesus, of being like Jesus, of doing what he did, but also building on this idea that I become who I am by the stories that I believe and by the habits that I form, which is what Luke talked about last week, often, the, the habits of the body, that that is how I become who I am. Now, the third category, I think, that, that we're going to look at here is this relationships. They play a very important role <laughs> in who I become, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say something like, you know, oh, they just, they fell in with the wrong crowd, right? Why is that important to note? <laughs> because who you spend time with actually makes a difference into who you become. It helps to shape the habits that you form, right? You start to look like the people that you hang out with. Right? The habits that you form and, and the stories that you believe about the world. Right? We tend to listen to people around us and what they say uh, about the world, how they understand the world, tends to be how I begin to understand the world, right? how I begin to see the world and, and the stories. And so relationships then become a vital part in this who I'm becoming. So as we start the sermon, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Okay? And we're going to look at what, what the Bible first says about relationships. Believe it or not, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are not necessarily meant to be a science textbook. They actually say something incredibly important about human beings and our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, here's what we find God saying, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. 
And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. Here's a couple things that we see that are really important for our understanding when it comes to relationships. Okay, It's not just our relationship with other people that matters. What we see in the Genesis narrative there is that God placed human beings in relationship with him. He placed human beings in relationship with others, with other people. He placed human beings in relation to themselves. I mean, that doesn't necessarily say that, but that's an obvious one, I think. Um, And then lastly, he placed human beings in relationship with his creation rule over it, to take care of it, right? And so what we find in Genesis chapter 1 is this idea of shalom, of peace in every direction, right? When God creates human beings, he creates them in peace, in harmony, in the way things should be in all directions, okay? And what I find interesting, though, is that God continually says when he makes his creation that it is good, but it is not until God creates man and woman that God actually looks at it and says it is very good. That it is at that moment that God then steps back and goes, now it's very good. It's very good. And what was missing? So Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 both give us creation accounts, and they're a little bit different. Trust me, the authors of Genesis knew that. They knew they, it was different, okay? They didn't, you know, this isn't some accidental patchwork here. But I think we find something important in Genesis chapter 2. <coughs> Sorry, and then I slammed the mic. <coughs> Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18 to 22. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from this rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, he exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Now we could keep reading there, but here's here's the point. God says, it is not good for man to be alone. As human beings, we were created for relationship. And again, that relationship is one that, you know what, God created, if we're, if we're kind of putting the, the two accounts together there, what we find, God created man, right, created Adam, and then he created all the animals, and there's a relationship there, right? But there's something missing. <laughs> there's something missing. And what God says missing is, is a partner for Adam, an equal, and he creates woman as an equal with him. And then he says, it's very good. Human beings were created for relationship, for perfect 
relationship with God, with themselves, with others, and with the created world. Okay, and that's the ideal that we read about at the very beginning of the Bible. And yet from Genesis 3 onward, what we find is anything but ideal. What we find is more and more people moving east of Eden. We find more and more they're becoming chaos and disaster in the world. And what is the, what, what is the primary consequence of that? This, I think, is important. The primary consequence that we see in the beginning, you go to Genesis chapter 3, or sorry, you go to Genesis chapter 4, what happens? We find the first murder, and then we find more murder, and as you read, things just get worse and worse and worse. Here's something about reading the Bible, guys. You're not supposed to read Genesis chapter 4 and go, oh, murder is good, right? No, right? So much of the Bible is, is moral formation. Understand, it doesn't mean it's not true, okay? I'm not saying it's not true or it didn't happen. But one of the primary purposes, when you read Genesis chapter 4, you're supposed to read that and go, that's not good. That's bad. That's, that is completely opposite to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And that's what sin does, is it drives a wedge between people. It pushes people apart. It seeks isolation rather than meaningful relationship. And this is the story throughout the Bible. Sin destroys peace. Sin destroys shalom. And because of that, then, meaningful peace, not just the absence of war, but like restored, right, correct, full relationship has been difficult ever since. We get to the New Testament, and I realize I am, uh, you know, skipping three quarters of the Bible here, okay? But just understand, it is a story of God continually calling people to relationship with him, to right relationship with others, and the story of human beings saying, yet yeah, no thanks. But that's... Even there, God's special people that he called, the, you know, the people of Israel, right? He said, you're going to be my light to the nations. You're going to show the world what I'm like. And they continually said, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> we want the benefits of being your people, but we don't actually want to live as your people, right? And so, again, you find this throughout. But then we, we see Jesus coming, right? As we read the Gospel of Matthew, we see over and over Jesus uh, kind of re recapitulating, redoing, you know, re kind of looking very similar to Adam, very similar to Moses, very similar to Israel. He came to bring peace again, restored relationship. Jesus is called what in Isaiah? The Prince of Peace. And we find it in the Gospels as well. He's the Prince of Peace. And Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that Jesus, that in Christ, right, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that do? It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when God created man and woman and said, now it is very good. There's no distinction. Nobody's better than anybody else. It doesn't matter you know, who, your, who your grandparents were. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have. All of that, it says, no, you were created to live in relationship with each other. Whether you're the richest man in the world and the poorest man in the world. Whether you come from, you know, Timbuktu or whether you come from Beijing. Like, you, you were made for relationship with each other. And so, we find this ideal. And I think it's what, as human beings, we long for, right? We long for that. It's, it's one of those places where I think, as, as humans, we can all go, yeah, wouldn't that be great if people could just get along? Right? I mean, John Lennon wrote songs about this, right? You know, like, I, I can only imagine, you know, like, you know, this idea, like, you know, like, like, 
he wrote songs about this. Yeah, I think he had the wrong idea. I think he was looking for peace in the wrong place. If people could just be nice to each other, right? If everybody could just get along, if people would stop fighting. Yeah, that's a wonderful ideal. The problem is, it's like it hasn't ever happened in like thousands of years. You know, like I can be like, John, that's a great idea. Problem is, I don't think you have a real solution. People have been saying things like that for a long time. Why can't we all just get along, right? Well, wouldn't that be wonderful? We need something, I think, outside of ourselves. Something bigger than ourselves. Something more meaningful. I think we need a God who can bring us together. And you know what? When the Apostle Paul, when, if you go and read the letters of St. Paul, right, the Apostle Paul, what you're going to find is there is a theme that comes through over and over and over in his letters. Do you know what that is? We all need to get along. But unlike John Lennon, he says, here's what will actually help us to get along. Jesus. Jesus is what will bring us together. Jesus is what will bring unity. Jesus is what can bring people from completely polar opposite political parties together. Jesus is what can bring people from completely uh, different you know, cultures together. And I think the church in Ireland is one of the places where you see the new Ireland functioning in a real and meaningful place where people that have come from all over the world come together. And I'm not just talking about our church. It's been my experience in churches in, in Ireland that where you see the new Ireland functioning in a meaningful, real, unified way is in the church. And I think it is a glorious testimony to our culture around us of the uniting power of Jesus that says somebody that comes from a completely different context and culture than me I can share a deep and meaningful relationship with. This is the ideal, but we know it's difficult. We know it's difficult. And apart from the Spirit, I think it's, it's impossible. Because we live in a time when community and deep and meaningful relationships are hard. Relationships have always been hard, okay? Let's not, let's not like gloss over this back in the good old days when relationships were easy. Relationships have always been hard because, well, people kind of stink. You know, like, <laughs> like let, let's be honest. We're difficult. You're difficult. I'm difficult. We're all difficult to varying degrees. So relationships have always been hard. But I think there's an added layer of difficulty now because it used to be that your community that you lived in provided you, in many ways, with an identity, right? People were connected into their small communities. You received an identity. And to be honest, you didn't know all that much about what was going on in the outside world, right? You were fairly isolated in your community. You received an identity who you were going to be from your family, from your neighbors, from your, you know, wherever you lived. People didn't travel as far. And so in that way, it was a bit easier. Relationships and community was a bit easier. But now we, we fully live in a globalized society. And before I criticize globalism, I want to say there's a lot of really good things about living in a global society. I like the fact that I can eat a banana whenever I want. You know, like, I mean, like, let's just say there are a lot of things and we're not, for time's sake, we're not going to talk about the good things of globalism. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, being able to fly, you know, like anywhere, you know, like the fact, you know, that, that Buddy and Susie can be here. Like, I mean, that's great. Like, there are benefits to globalism, okay? But... Here's one of the problems I think that we, we find in our kind of globalist, consumerist, individualistic society, and I know I'm using some, some words there, like globalist, consumeristic, individualistic, individualistic society. And here's what I mean. Our world 
has become increasingly globalized. And people thought, oh, the world's just going to become more and more connected and more and more, you know, we'll just, everybody, the world will feel small, but yet at the same time, when I think about, you know, people in, you know, some country thousands of miles away, I'll feel a bit small. But what's happened is rather than actually bringing us together, it's just, for the most part, people have lost, what's ended up happening is people have lost real community. Because how much community can you really have over you know, a shared brand you can, or a shared hobby, right? So I enjoy now building guitar pedals. That's something I've, I've come to enjoy, right? And I can be on a forum with other people who enjoy building guitar pedals that live in the, you know, in the UK or in Germany or you know, in China or in, in America or whatever. But how much deep, meaningful community can I really have with them? How much deep relationship can I really have? It's, it can't provide me what I long for. Right? The deep, meaningful relationship, because our relationship doesn't really go very deep. It's like, I have a problem understanding why this resistor isn't working in this circuit, and, then, you know, and I don't really understand a circuit, so please help me. You know, like that's, you can't really have a strong, deep bond with somebody over that. And so what's ended up happening in our globalized world is that most of relationships that we have now come with, I enjoy a certain type, you know, I enjoy um, fine coffees. Or, you know, I enjoy wine tasting. Or, you know, I enjoy um, making guitar pedals. Or I enjoy, you know, like, these communities end up becoming, like, like hobby-centric or, you know, things that I enjoy-centric. <laughs> Is that, like, a way to say it? Um, or even there, brands, right? I demonstrate, you know, if I dress up, you know, in, like, my big black pants with like chains all over them and I start wearing makeup, right? There's a certain community that when I walk down the street, they look at me and go, he's one of us, right? Or, you know, if I, you know, if I start growing my handlebar mustache out a certain way, and uh, I guess I am wearing flannel, um, but you know, and I have my beanie on a certain way, and I, you know, I'm sipping a certain type of coffee, people will, you know, as I walk down the street, people will look at me and go, oh, that guy's on my side, he's on my team, we're, we're, we're a community. And the thing is, is we all think we're these unique snowflakes, and yet we all wear the same global brands, and we all go to the same coffee shops that somehow look like they belong in Sweden, whether we're in Taiwan, or Australia, or America, or Moikulin. Like, now, I'm bashing it, but I love these places. Like, you know, like, hey, I'm I like the Scandinavian sort of look of things, and I love good coffee, and all those things, like, so, but I'm just saying, like, hear me out. I think within our culture, this has been become what unites people, what brings people together. And the thing is, is that we're all finding out it's pretty shallow. It's pretty shallow. It can't provide us with the meaningful relationships that we need. And what ends up happening is in it too, consumerism tends to breed individualism. And here's why consumerism breeds individualism. All right? So we end up with kind of a brand management sort of way of looking at the world. Right? So I, I, I can't actually really open myself up to somebody because if I'm really honest with them, who knows what could happen? You know, like, like we end up with, uh, you know, there's no room for failure. Right? So we end up with this kind of brand management identity through owning things. Um, and all of life essentially becomes shopping. <laughs> Everything comes about shopping and accessorizing my life. And so we lose the deep, meaningful core of who God created us to be because we're busy shopping for this thing or that thing that will accessorize my life so that then I can cultivate brand me so that then people will think a certain thing about me. And what ends up happening 
then it's, instead of actually bringing people together, it drives people apart into individualism because it makes coveting a default action. Because of the world that we live in, we end up looking at other people and either thinking, well, I'm glad I look better than them, or you know, looking at other people and going like, oh, that's a really nice car. I wish I had that. Right? And, and it turns coveting, that thing that's in like the Ten Commandments that says thou shalt not, our culture makes coveting into like a default action. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, what other people have, what I have, what I don't have, what they don't have, right? And it creates this sort of competition mindset that makes relationships difficult. And so what ends up happening is my brand management and my individualism end up keeping me from the community I crave, the relationships that I desire. Those things that they say will bring you together don't really have enough strength to actually bring people together. There's not enough substance. So the last thing I'm going to say on this is just to say that I think for the early church, a lot of the struggle there was the pull of communities of origin, and maybe in the past too, like saying, I'm going to follow Jesus or something. The, the pull there for them was like, I, well, I have to leave my community of origin. Like the people that I've always hung out with, the people I've always been with, the deep relationships that I have. But I think for us, then the struggle really, not to say that that can't be a struggle. I think it is still, but I think the primary struggle that we have is not making our faith just an accessory to our lives. It's not just making it a thing I add to my Twitter bio or a thing that I, I do so long as it gives me the feeling that I want. And rather to begin to see following Jesus as not just an enhancement to my life, but instead continuing to trust. And this, I think, is difficult to us. Continuing to trust that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that, God, that Jesus is Lord, even when it doesn't feel like it. Or those times where, you know, I feel like maybe I shouldn't do something because Maybe Jesus wouldn't want me to do it, but I want to do it anyway. It's those times, right, where, where all of a sudden we realize, do I actually believe this or is it just an accessory to my life? And so this is a difficulty and, and, a, and a struggle that we have because I think intuitively, again, we tend to look at our lives through the lens of consuming and individualism rather than saying, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And he is where I find life and life to the full. And I will trust him even when I don't see it. And this is why I think, um, you know, one of the main purposes, I think, of, of, say, the book of Revelation. Like, sometimes that book is much maligned one way or another. But I think it's, it was written to people who were struggling in the same way many of us do. When our lives, our lived reality, contradicts Jesus' words, we feel like anyway, of that life to the full. And it's that reminder that actually in the end, Jesus wins. That Jesus is sovereign. That Jesus is in control. And so, the relationships that we choose to form with people will be really important when it comes to who we are. The people you spend your time with are forming your spirit. They are forming your spirit. 
And so, and really there are four main categories. And we probably won't have time to look too much at this, but there are four main categories of relationships that we have. Right? We have friendships. Okay? We have church relationships, which hopefully there's like some crossover there. Uh, you know, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. Marriage. Again, hopefully there's some crossover. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and family. You know, again, so all of those hopefully are, are like, you know, inextricably intertwined with one another. But those are kind of the four main categories of relationships. And we need to look and say, how do I cultivate those relationships so that they are healthy relationships that lead me to a deeping, deeper, more meaningful relationship with Christ? But realize, too, it's not just about me. How do I help other people, too, in the relation, my relational sphere to have those same meaningful relationships with, with God? Right? So spiritual formation is always happening. And if not intentionally cultivated, it occurs unintentionally and largely unnoticed. Again, going back to that idea of like, well, he fell in with a bad crowd, right? Um, so if you remember that from the first week, there's, there it is again, right? So we've talked about the stories that we believe, right? We talked about the habits um, that, we, that we cultivate and the relationships that we have. All of those go into forming who we become. And so what we want to do is help those to become intentional, right? The teachings and practices and community, um, we want to be intentional about every one of these categories. And this morning as we're talking specifically um, relationships, right? So because people will naturally drift into looking like those around them. You will not drift into spiritual maturity. That won't happen. You won't drift into spiritual maturity. You will naturally look like the people you spend time with. And so we need to be intentional about this. Our understanding of the world, then, is passed down through community. And so, like I said, we need to be careful about the relationships that we're cultivating, the people that we spend our time with. Now, I can already hear somebody saying, well, didn't Jesus hang out with sinners? And I can say I can hear that because as I was writing this sermon, I thought the same thing. <laughs> You know, because I want to be careful. Like, what I am not advocating is a retreat from the world where, you know, you guys are my only friends. Don't go away. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to do here, okay? So hear, hear me out, all right? We'll get to that. I, I'm not, don't worry. I'm not. All of a sudden, the door locks in the back. Like, we're all going to be friends. No, I'm not, okay? I'm not, I'm not doing that, okay? But, so here, here's what I'm saying. Didn't Jesus befriend immoral sinners? Yeah, he sure did. He sure did. And shouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But here's, here's an important thing that I was thinking about is this. Who ended up looking like who in those relationships? Who ended up looking like who? Which person's vision of the world was more compelling? We're in church. The answer's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you read the Gospels, like, it's Jesus, right? And so, like, I think it's important that we realize Jesus was deeply connected in community, not just with the bad crowd, right? Jesus was not just connected in with them, right? We find that Jesus had 12 disciples, right? You read Mark chapter 4, okay? Jesus had 12 disciples. He had another inner circle that was about 70 people. And aside from that, he had hundreds of people that followed him around everywhere. 
that listened to his teaching, that, that, were in, that he was in community with on a regular basis, people who were seeking the kingdom of God. So Jesus had community even there. And yes, he absolutely made time for those people that most of society did not make time for. He made time and spent time and cared for like people from all kinds of reputations and backgrounds, even some of his disciples, right, were, were not exactly the most upright individuals. Um, they would be in, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, minimum security prison for, you know, swindling money off of people and things like that, you know, or, you know, like one of them was a zealot, so maybe even like, you know, more like a maximum security prison for murder. You know, like, they're not exactly like the best crowd always, but like, but again, they were seeking the kingdom of God. Jesus called them into relationship with him. And what we find then is that, like Jesus had a core of people with him, right? And his vision of the world was the one that was compelling. And so we need to ask the questions then, <clears throat> how are the relationships that I have in my life, how are they influencing me? And how can I be more intentional about them? Because we have varying degrees of control you know, wherever we are in our stage of life, we have varying degrees of control over the relationships that we have, right? I once got a, a birthday card or something that said something like, uh, you know, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family, right? Okay, so we only have like varying degrees of, of control over our family, right? We're born into a family, and you know, it's probably not best to, you know, forego our families and say, I will not have anything to do with you, right? Like that's probably not the best, right? We have families of origin, like we're born into families, and that's a good thing, that's not a bad thing, right? But we only have a certain level of control. For some of us, we only have a, you know, we don't really have any control anymore over who we married, right? And that can be a good thing, or that, that, that could be a difficult thing. Some of you, you do have control over that, so there's a lot that can be said on that, but we'll just say, we'll, we'll stop there. I'm trying not to go on too many tangents here because I don't want us to go forever. Um, but yeah, we have varying degrees of control over the relationships that we have. We can control, to a degree, our friendships. Okay, we can control that. We can control the relationships that I have, uh, the relationship that I have with, with church. Right? And so like, let's take the relationships that I know I can have a level of control over, and let's cultivate those as healthy as possible. And even there, the relationships that I don't have control over, I still have control over how I handle those relationships and the way I live within those relationships. And so, again, I think it's important that we assess those relationships that we have with our friends, with our church, with our marriage, and with our, in our families, and say, how can I cultivate these relationships? How can I work on these relationships so that they are, are healthy and life giving relationships that are leading me closer to Jesus. Okay? So, yeah, that's the last thing I'll say on, on, on that. Because if we have healthy relational categories, right, if we have healthy relationships, what it does then is it prepares us <coughs> to be like Jesus, to go into the world with relationships that may be less than healthy, um, and to remain strong and healthy, right? To be like Jesus, to be able to go to those people who need to hear the good news of the gospel, who may be longing for that and don't even know it, right? And to be able to share Jesus in those situations and healthy relationships that are gonna go a long ways into helping us be, be healthy people 
as we deal with people who are not healthy, right? Because maybe we've all been there too. And you know, um, not just like hanging out with the wrong crowd, but people who drain, who are needy, who are difficult, who are in places where we need to reach out and be a hand of help to them. And that can be difficult, right? And again, we need to have the power, the resources to, maintain, you know, to stay healthy. And, and, and again, I think the spirit helps there and also our relationships with other people hopefully will help us in those places. So here's what I think then. Following Jesus means living then in godly community. It means in living in godly community with other Christians. So I went ahead and just put this whole quote up. I wrote it down in, in the sermon. Um, I say I say quote I wrote it so I, but I still I felt it was I, I put it all up. Um, <laughs> I'm not quoting a famous person here, so if it's terrible, then you know who to blame. Um, but here's what I wrote: While Jesus did get off by himself to pray, he chose to live in community. He lived, worshipped, ate, drank, taught, and shared with others. So Luke, in the very first week, or well, when we talked about abiding, talked about how Jesus got off into the wilderness and prayed, right? It's good, we need to do that. Even there this morning before church, we talked about the idea of silence and solitude and, and having time off to ourselves. But we can't forego community. Jesus lived in community. Jesus embodied God's heart for restored community with humanity by the very fact that he became, became flesh and dwelt among us. Read that in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us. God's presence was with us. And if this is what the master did, if this is what Jesus did, if we're to be apprentices of Jesus, and this is what he did, then so too should we. Because the stories, right, the mind, the things of the mind, the stories and the habits, our bodies, are passed on through Community. The stories and the habits that we have are passed on through community. Christian spiritual formation happens then for the Christian in a community of Jesus' followers. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12 um, is a really good place. Um, Deuteronomy 6 is a great, just if you want to, if you want to like run down the road of like the importance of community and remembering right? Collective memory, telling stories and all of that and the power of that. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a really, really cool place um, to go. But in Deuteronomy 6, 12, um, Moses says, uh, says this. Uh, where's it at? Be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Okay? Now, I just chose that out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 because of the idea of remembering. In other words, what, he, what Moses commands in, in Deuteronomy 6 is to continually tell the story and to do it in ways that, form, that, that involve habits of worship, <laughs> habits of, of praise, right? rituals. Um, you're going to find all of that in Deuteronomy. We think it's like a boring book of, of laws, but actually it's a really profound thing when it comes to who we, talking about who we become as people. And in Deuteronomy 6, it talks about the, the role of the community, of the family, and of the larger community in helping people become who they are. 
To intentionally reflect Christ, then, requires a community of people committed to an intentional and continuous retelling of the story of God. Rehabituating our lives, in other words, reforming habits, and reorienting our desires through worship. Because you have habits, and you are worshiping something. Let's start being intentional about it. Let's start taking hold of that and actually crafting and forming and cultivating, farming, you know, our lives so that they look like Jesus. And so it's important that we live in, in relationship. We find in Hebrews chapter 10, 25, uh, the author, the writer of Hebrews basically saying, there's a bunch of Christians that have stopped going to church, and that's not good. I'm paraphrasing there, but you can go read it yourself. That's basically what it says. People have stopped going to church, that's bad. Why would he say that? Is it because you know, his salary depends on it and he's worried about, you know, like, I've got to get bums in the seats? Or, or what, like, is that what he's concerned about? No, that's not. But what he understands, and I think we should understand too, is people as a lone Christian, like the Bible doesn't under, like, know that. Okay? The Bible does not know somebody who lives as a Christian by themselves. Unless it is just one of those things where it is absolutely, there's no other way around it. Right? And actually, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he gets talked about a lot up here, but he talks about there may be a season of life or something like that where you may be alone. I mean, the guy was trying to be a Christian in Nazi Germany, so I think he understands a thing or two about that, right? He says there may be a season, but it was never meant to be that way, right? That we were meant to live uh, together in community because uh, what ends up happening is a lone Christian becomes the ultimate echo chamber, right? We turn the Bible, we make it say what we want it to say, um, you know, we can think whatever we want, we can justify whatever we want, rationalize whatever we want, because there's nobody to look at us and say, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Um, hold on a second, right? We don't have that, right? And so we end up becoming uh, an ultimate echo chamber. And this is exactly, I think, what uh, our, our culture ends up pushing, right? Our, our Western individualistic culture leads Christians to neglect meeting together because, hey, what do I need church for? I can do it on my own, right? I can listen to a podcast, I can watch a YouTube video or something like that, right? And, and what ends up happening then is we end up looking at church as an optional extra. And that, I think, is a product of our culture because our culture thrives on individualism because it's impossible to escape the culture of consumerism if, you know, if you're on your own. That's what, like, that's... One cannot escape the culture of consumerism and live well for God on their own. Christians need each other. And so what I think we find then is community is a reminder that life is not just about me. There it is. Life is not just about me. And so the last thing I'm going to say here before we get to kind of the end is this. What I want to talk about is this. I don't want you just to see this as you and your spiritual formation. Okay? That's important. And I, I do want you to look at that. But I also want you to see it in the bigger, broader picture. This is not just about you. This is about our church. This is not just about our church. This is about the church in Ireland. This is not just about the church in Ireland. This is about the people of Ireland and how the church shows Christ to the people of Ireland. And this is not just about Ireland. This is about the way Christians show the world what Jesus is like. And guys, 
you know, again, just to kind of put it in context, how many of you knew much about Ukrainian Christians before this? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I mean, I know some people in Ukraine. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I did know, did know some, but I would say I'd venture to guess most of us probably didn't know a whole lot. But if you actually start looking at, at much of what Christians in Ukraine are doing, it's incredible. And we've got brothers and sisters in, Ukraine, in Christ in Ukraine who are, are literally staying there, not necessarily to, you know, picking up guns and shooting at people, but carrying humanitarian aid through, you know, like providing bomb shelters and things. You know, we took up an offering last week. That's who it's for. It's for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are showing the world the good news that Jesus makes a difference to our lives, that life to the full is even possible in a war zone as, I'm, you know, as I am living as the hands and feet of Jesus suffering along with other people, sharing with other people, giving myself and the things that I have to other people so that they may survive. And so we, we can't underestimate that. When I, when I start talking in this global, like, we, you know, our little church is going to show the world what Jesus is like, well, okay, maybe not right now, but there may come a time, right? We're, this is something bigger than us. And the power of habits and stories and worship, they're passed on. And here's, here's the, what, I, what I really wanted to get at is this. Those kids upstairs or in there, they should matter to you, even if they're not your kids. They should matter to you. And you know what? Spiritual formation, it, it starts from the moment they're born, right? And that's like one of the things I think is really scary as a parent, you know, like all the things that like I expose my children to, all of that, like it is forming them. And yet I don't think it's good to like, just like, you know, like hover over your kids like a helicopter and like not let them see anything, you know, like, so it's always like finding that line and going like, how do I be a responsible parent who raises a kid who loves Jesus? And you know what? I think one of the primary things is when I look at my, the formation of my children and who they're going to become, I look at you guys. And I say, they're looking at you. They're looking at me too, and they're going to see every little contradiction, trust me, because they live with me at home, right? So I, there's a huge responsibility on me. But they look at you too. And that goes all those kids upstairs. They look at you. You bear a responsibility. And not just in the way that you lived your life, but the stories that you tell them, the habits that they form. And this is something I think is really important, is that we begin telling children Bible stories, but not just that. Placing rituals and daily habits of worship, and there it goes. We actually talked about that this morning. It would, it would, it would provide a, uh, a breather for a moment in the sermon. Um, there we go. But that, uh, yeah, we need to help kids to imagine that the kingdom of God is better and to give them the resources to imagine that, to understand that. And one last thing I'm going to say on this. I know I've said that already. One last thing. I just want to address religious brainwashing for a moment, okay? Because I think that can come up. When you start saying, like, well, we need to take the kids and we need to give them all these habits and all these, you know, like, oh, they can go, well, that's starting to sound an awful lot like religious brainwashing to me. You know, because you hear those things, right? And it's always religious people. Why is it always religious people that are the ones brainwashing? 
That's who it is. Do you know what? Like when you start hearing about those people, it's always like the religious people that are religiously brainwashing people. But here's the thing. Here's a simple reality. We are all being educated into a way of being. Every child, if you are a complete secularist who's just going to let your kids decide whatever gender they want to be and they, they can, you know, whatever, all of those kinds of things. If you want to be a hands-off parent who just says, hey, I'm here to be my kid's friend. I'm just here to encourage them. Let them become who they're going to become. I don't want to have any influence on them. You're having an influence on them. You're brainwashing them into a way of being if you want to continue to use that phrase. I think it's better just to understand that whether you are the person, whether you're that person, or whether you're a person who, again, would be like on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, who I probably wouldn't agree with either. You know, like, you're still, everybody is being formed into a way of being. So let's just call it what it is. Let's stop that sort of attitude and just say, kids will become who they are largely because of the adults that they spend time with. The ideologies that are pushed onto them and the agendas, like, because we all want to do what's best for kids, right? We all want to do what's best for them. And so, there, it, again, sorry, that was a tangent. Um, <laughs> so, I'm just going to skip forward here to say this. God is not calling his people to retreat from the culture. We talked about this. Rather, he's calling disciples, apprentices of Jesus, to live as, as a community amid the culture. And so, we need... We need to be people who live in relationship with each other. But again, and I'll say this over and over, this will be the repeated theme throughout this series. Start where you are, not where you should be. All right? And where you are isn't necessarily where you have to be. I think sometimes that's a lie that we believe. This is who I am. This is where I'm destined to be. No, it's not. You can become what, you know, what on your own you couldn't, by the power of the Spirit, start where you are, not where you should be. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to give us three places to start. Okay? These are three. Like I said, start where you are, not where you should be. So we're going to start, like, start easy. Maybe even just pick one of these. Like, maybe you need to just start with one of these. Maybe you're doing all of them. I, I don't know. So maybe you need to add something different. But here's what I'll say. Come to church regularly. Come to church regularly. Now, you guys are all here. Okay? So step one. There you go. Come to church regularly. And I don't, again, I don't say that because I want everybody's bum in the seat or, or whatever, you know, to make me feel better or something. But it's because I genuinely believe that there is power in a group of people meeting together, worshiping together. The rituals of reading scripture together, of singing scripture together, of singing praise to God, of hearing from the word of God, of taking communion. Honestly, Probably what I'm doing right now is probably the least important thing that we do as a church, if I'm being honest. I think the other things are deeply formative and powerful. Because, you know what, I know you've tuned out for at least half of this sermon, because I would too. Like, you know, it just happens, right? We start thinking about other things and all that, but like, these are powerful moments, like communion and singing together, all of those things, right? So come to church regularly. Hang out with followers of Jesus. I'm not just saying like only with the people in our church. There are other great churches in the area. Like find people who are followers of Jesus and spend time with them. I want to spend time with you too, again, okay? And we have community groups and they're a great place to, to gather together. We, we push those all the time because we think they're important. But don't just meet in community groups. 
meet up for dinner, meet up for coffee, meet up, you know, like, again, wear your beanie and your flannel shirt and, and you know, go have a coffee, you know, with somebody or, or whatever, like, okay, like, but meet with people. Invite someone to a meal and make a decision to be open. I think that's a hard one for us, right? Again, in our, in our culture of brand management and all of that, like, it's, it's nerve-wracking to be open with people. We have to make that decision. And I'm, I'm not saying like, hey, I don't really know you, let's meet for a cup of coffee and then like, I'm gonna tell you all my deepest, darkest secrets. I'm not necessarily saying that's what you need, that's the route you need to take, okay? I'm just saying, have an openness. Like, you don't need to just talk about the weather, right? Have an openness, be willing to be open. And you know what, maybe even pray together. Maybe even pray together. The last thing I'll say is this, serve people in our church. Because again, it reminds us that it's not just about us, right? Serve the people in our church, don't just be served. We're to serve one another, to love one another, right? And, and that doesn't have to be anything huge or major or whatever, but like, let's find ways to love and to serve each other, all right? So, we begin to experience the blessings of Jesus, I think, the life to the full that Jesus offers as we begin to live more and more in relationship with other followers of Jesus in community. Because here's the thing. In our world of brand management, there is no grace. You screw up, you're done. You say the wrong thing, it's over. And you may have to do some sort of penance where you go to some sort of counseling or you apologize in public. And we all know so many of those are so hollow, we can feel it, right? In our world of brand management, a community where people can be who they are and experience grace and love and forgiveness, where somebody can say, I'm not sure I actually believe that, and people don't hit them over the head with the Bible as fast as they possibly can, but actually listen, and show each other the grace that Jesus showed to people, right? And if, what if there was a community where people could experience that, the grace of Jesus mediated through the people of Jesus, the love of God mediated through the people of God? Restoration, forgiveness, right? Because we're going to make each other mad and we're going to mess up. And you know what? We get a chance to be Jesus for somebody else, to show them the grace, the love, and the forgiveness. We receive this from Christ, and we receive it from one another. And as we come to communion, this is a place where we receive, again, the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Christ, where we remember what he has done for us. And it's a powerful moment. Like, this is a powerful thing. It may be juice and a cracker, but it is a powerful, meaningful thing because it says something significant about what has been done for us and then how we live then for other people. We live in relationship with God. We love God and we love other people. And when we fail, there is forgiveness and there is grace. And it is at this time of communion that we remember that forgiveness and grace that we have been given. The relationship that we have been given. All right, and so we're gonna take communion. I'm gonna pray for us and uh, yeah, we're gonna play a song.